morning. Um, I always love when Robert stands up and speaks. He has such energy and love for the gospel and for the kids to know who Jesus is uh, that I think, I think if we could, we'd all go downstairs to see how he's going to teach um, or what he's going to do with an axe. Um, I, I'm really excited about our text this morning. Today, we're, we're going to zero in on the life of the church, and we're going to see why we come together and what we do when we come together. Like, how do we act? And so Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, said, the church is a city on a hill. And what that means is that the church is a bright light in the world that displays the beauty and the wonder of the kingdom of God. The world is supposed to look at the church because this, the church is this bright city on a hill. So the world is supposed to look at the church and it ought to be in awe and wonder when we gather. And so uh, based upon our interactions, based upon how we love one another, I want you to think the world should want the gospel to be true. Do you get that? Like when they see us and they go, well, I don't believe that, but, but I want to just because of how they live. And, and I'm excited um, in thinking about this text. You as a church, we as a church, as we gather, there's already great joy here. And there is neat things that God is doing in this church and the way we love one another. Many of you were here last night. We had a little over 100 people as we did our table group launch night. And we, we ate food and we talked about just what table groups is. And there was just joy how we, we interacted and we served. Every Sunday morning that we gather, there's a joy. Kelly, uh, wherever Kelly went, uh, he testified of it, of the table groups. And just the joy that was there as they were just going through an extended time where Cynthia was, was with her mom in Kansas and the way the church ministered to them at that time. And so I pray that largely God uses this message and just pours gas on a fire that I think is already here, that our joy would continue to increase and the way we love and serve one another would, would be all the more fervent just through the Spirit of God who lives in us. So our main point today is that the sacrificial love of the church for one another magnifies the glory of God. So that's what we're going to see. As we come together and we sacrifice uh, for one another, that God is glorified. So if you have your Bibles, Romans 15, I'll ask you to go ahead and stand. We stand here when we read God's word because uh, it's a reminder that this is like no other book. This is the word of God that comes from God, inspired by God to build up the body of Christ. So Romans 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days, former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures... We might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, God, this is an exciting text. On, on we get to just look at the interactions of the church. 
and how the gospel has saved us, how the gospel transforms us, and how the gospel informs us on how we are to live. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us today would just be more transformed into the image of your son and that you would use this text as a means of instructing us on how we are to live and act with one another so that your glory would continue to go forth each and every day. God, we thank you for this. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So so I want to start with a question this morning. It's a simple question. Um, Why do we gather? Like, like why do we gather together? And just, just think about that question. Like, why are you here? Like, why did you come this morning? What was your goal when you arrived? Or what did you hope to accomplish? Now, that might even sound strange. Some of you might be going, what did I hope to accomplish? I came, I came to, to be here. I came to, you know, to, to sit and to watch the things that have happened. You might have thought, not have thought about what am I going to do when I come and when I arrive Many times what happens is we can spectate, we can observe, or we can even expect to be served. But we need to say, why did we come? What am I to do when I gather with God's people? And if we look at verses 1 and 2, it says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, it's not a complicated statement. I mean, we could sum it up. We gather to serve and please others. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Um, the word obligation means to owe a debt or to have a strong commitment or responsibility. The word bear means to carry. So we willingly obligate ourselves to one another to help carry the burdens of one another. And Paul's not suggesting, saying, hey, this would be really cool if you did this. But, but he's actually describing the life of the church. He's actually saying the gospel makes demands on the church that we would live a different way. And so now when we gather, we come determined to serve one another. This is summed up where Paul says, we gather not to please ourselves, that's the negative, and then the positive is, but we come to please our neighbor for his good to build him up. So before we go any further, let's, let's make sure we understand the context of why is Paul saying this? Who are strong? Who are weak? Like, what is he talking about? So Paul is writing to the church of Rome. The church of Rome is, is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And Jews are known, uh, especially throughout the Old Testament, as God's people. They had the law. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the sacrificial system. They honored the Sabbath each week. And they've been practicing those things For over a thousand years. But then Jesus comes. And he dies on a cross. And he rises from the grave. And he fulfills the requirements of the law. He fulfills the role of the priest. He fulfills the role of the sacrifice. Hebrews says that Jesus is our rest for our believers. And so... So now we see that these things have been practiced for thousands of years, have been fulfilled in Christ. And so now when these Jews who have all this tradition and history behind them and they're gathering together in the church with Gentiles, Gentiles is anyone who's not a Jew, 
things get a little bit messy. And so Paul is addressing that. Like if we were to go back into chapter 14, chapter 14 begins to describe a little bit of the difficulties here. Like in chapter 14, verse 2, we read, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Chapter 14, verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. The Jews still believe there is... uh, that there's certain meat that they cannot eat. There are certain days that they're not able to work on. And Paul is saying that they're weak. Now, to be weak just means that they've not fully understood what Christ has done at the cross and the implications of that upon their lives. And in 15.1, he's going to call himself, so we know not because Paul's a Jew, so not all Jews are weak, but Paul calls himself strong and the Gentiles strong because they're understanding the freedom that they now have in Christ. And this is a a huge issue in the first century. In fact, trying to figure out how Jews and Gentiles come together is so big that there's a thing called the Jerusalem Council. If you were to go to Acts chapter 15, you would read about there's these difficulties in all these churches where Jews and Gentiles are coming and they're figuring out how do we do life together? And what we understand is that when the church does come together, there are difficulties. Church is hard. It, it's not easy, and we're certainly not perfect. There's always differences that we face, and if we're not careful, these differences can breed, div- can breed bitterness, and bitterness will always bring about division. And all throughout the New Testament, we see that the churches are always facing division. The same thing happens today. We're always facing things that Satan would love to divide the church. And we can divide on our our view on alcohol. We can divide on on Christian war, on on our idea of of clothing, Bible versions, styles of worship, political positions. I mean, we can pick almost anything. In fact, in the New Testament, uh, we see one church is so divisive. Paul says this, writing to the Corinthian church. He says, 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Now, could you imagine? Like, could you imagine, like, like, like I'm Paul, and I walk up, and there's problems in here. I'm like, man, I'm so glad I baptized none of you except Jeff and Aaron. Like, I, I'm not affirming anyone's salvation except Jeff and Aaron here. Like, that's what he's saying. He's like, you guys got serious issues going on. And so, so this is something that churches have always been facing, and we're, we realize that in God's word, we're either building one another up or we are tearing one another down. There's no in-between. We're either building or we're tearing down. Um, my wife will remember this. She looks up. She has no idea what I'm about to say. Uh, on July 25th, which is our anniversary, good, uh, we, we decided to go paddleboarding. We live at the north end of Long Lake, and we're like, hey. Let's go up. So I'm like, honey, let's get up early and do this, which is exactly what she wants to do on our anniversary. And so we get up, and we, we paddle to the south end of the lake, which was a leisurely paddle of 20 to 30 minutes. It took us to get down there. We then hang out just on the paddle boards at the south end of the lake. And then we said, let's head back. But um, nature changed since we'd been down there, and the winds had picked up. And now there was a strong current against us the entire way. So we're paddling. You're paddle, like, 
against the current, and you're kind of laughing the whole time too. You don't make good progress, and every time we stop paddling, we just move backwards. So we're either moving forward against the current or we're moving back. It took us over an hour to get back up to the north end of Long Lake. So it was a great way to start um, our anniversary, and we said, okay, we're not doing that again today. Um, but we see that we're either paddling against the current, moving towards unity, or we will drift with sin because sin is the natural flow of the human heart towards division. We are paddle against the current, meaning it's work, it's effort, towards unity, or we will flow towards division and tear one another down. And so what's the solution? What do we do? How, how, do, we, how do we overcome division? How do we build one another up? What do we do here, like in a context where there is this divisive moment? Should the strong, those like Paul, who fully understand what Jesus has done, do we just simply teach the weak and we make them understand? Does the strong dominate and force the weak to simply comply? Do we force views upon another? Look at what Paul says. So if you go back to chapter 14, verse 17, this is what Paul says. He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Meaning, it is not just about eating and drinking. It's so much more. We're about building each other up in righteousness. We're about displaying joy. We're about building one another up in peace. That's the goal, not what we get to eat or drink. So he says, that is not what the kingdom of God is. He then says, verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. So everything is clean. We can eat everything. The strong are right. He's not saying that they're wrong. The strong are right, but everything indeed is clean. But it's wrong for another to make someone stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink or wine or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul is saying we, we willingly and we joyfully give up our freedoms in order to build one another up. Why? Because we're not about just pursuing our own pleasures and saying, well, I know it's right to eat these things or drink these things or do these things, so I'm just going to do them. But rather, we've been freed by the gospel from only seeking our own pleasure that now we would seek the joy of others as well. And so that's why in 15.1 he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. This means we don't ignore them. This means we don't ostracize them. Rather, we come alongside them. We bear them up, meaning we encourage them. We lovingly walk with them so that in time, we'd pray that they would grow in their understanding of the gospel and see what Christ has done for them. The gospel has freed us from pursuing our pleasure so we would seek the pleasure of others. Or in other words, church isn't about me. Church isn't about me. Church isn't about coming together. Church is about coming together and thinking, how do I serve others today? How do I please others? And, and so we, we do this when we come on a Sunday. This means our role on, on Sundays mean, well, I'm not coming with the purpose of sitting and watching. Rather, I'm coming to participate. I'm coming to, 
So I can look and identify for needs. I come so I get to know one another. We come early, we stay late. That's a phrase that we use a lot. Come early, stay late, because we want to serve. We want to please others. Our goal is, when I come on a Sunday morning, how do I get to build others up today? We don't come to only serve and do the things we want. If that was the case, then Paul would say, let the strong eat meat in front of the weak and say, well, too bad. Suck it up. And if you think about it, that's so often how, what we do. We go, well, this is where I want to serve, and if I can't serve here, then I'm just not going to do that. I want to do what I want to do. I'll, I'll serve where it's comfortable. And yet Paul's saying, no, we willingly give up the things we enjoy to build up others. I'm willingly placing myself in an area of discomfort so I can make you comfortable, so I can build you up. So we serve where needed. We serve and even help when it's uncomfortable. Why? Because we love one another. If you go back to Romans 12, 10. So, real quick, the, the book of Romans, Romans 1 through 11, is just deep theology on the gospel and the plan of God since creation all the way through the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ as we wait for his return. That's 1 through 11. 12 through 16 is looking at, so what does that look like lived out on a day-to-day basis? So in chapter 12, he starts talking about the church has been gifted to, uh, by the Holy Spirit to build one another up. And then he starts describing just what the church looks like. And in Romans 12, 10, he says, we love one another with brotherly affection and we outdo one another in showing honor. So when we gather, we're sitting there going, how do we outdo one another in showing honor? How do we just love and build each other up? Romans 13, 18 says, oh, no one anything. But if you are to owe someone, it says this, except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. So the goal is when we come, how do we just love one another? How do I come so determined to sacrifice whatever freedoms I have, whatever comforts I have, so that I would be used by God to build others up? And and notice, just the church is to turn the values of the world upside down. The church is in a place where the strong sit back and say, serve me. I deserve it. I'm qualified. I actually understand all these things. You don't, so you have more work to do. But rather, the strong, we see, they don't dominate the weak. They don't oppress. Rather, they're the ones who willingly obligate themselves to serve others. And this isn't just strong and weak. Here, Paul is specifically applying the principle of serving one another to a direct issue that the church is happening, that the church is uh, facing. But in Philippians chapter 2, and in so many other places in the Bible, we see Paul's talking about the regular working of the church. So don't think, so if I'm weak, I don't have to serve. There's a benefit here, right? I just won't read the Bible as much, I won't understand as much, so everyone will serve me. No. Philippians 2, 3 through 5 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Now here's the crazy part. Which is yours in Christ Jesus? Meaning, this mindset that I'm commanding you to have, demanding you to have, is what you received When you believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you were given the mind of Christ. Every single believer has been saved by the gospel, 
transformed by the gospel, given the Holy Spirit, that he would live in them so we would then live like Jesus. Do you get that? Isn't that crazy? So if you're sitting here today going, I don't know. That sounds kind of hard. No. God literally dwells in you, that he would work in you, that this would be the natural working of what it looks like when the church gathers together, which begs the question, so, so how do we do this? How does the Spirit of God who transforms us now work in us so we would live like this? That's a good question, right? Bible clearly says we gather to build one another up, to encourage one another. We have this mind of Christ, and yet we know we still struggle with sin. And so how do we spur this on? How do we grow in our fervency to serve one another, to count one another as more significant than ourselves? And so Paul answers that, and he's going to give us three ways. Number one, we look to Jesus. If you look at verse three, Paul immediately turns all focus on Jesus. He says... For, meaning you're to serve this way, you're to live this way, because Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So I think Paul is imagining some of the readers saying, okay, Paul, you want me to give up meat? I ain't no vegetarian. You want me to give up bacon? I wrap bacon around everything. I'm not about to start giving up. I really enjoy these things. And Paul goes, yeah, I do. That's exactly what I'm expecting you to do. Why? Because that's what our king did. That's what Jesus did. Because Jesus came and he served to what we see as the point of death. And what's interesting here is Paul doesn't go to the gospel and to the cross. Like, that's not where he goes. He doesn't go, don't you remember the life of Jesus? But rather he goes Old Testament on them, and he goes to Psalm 69, where Psalm 69 is written by King David, and what we see is in this psalm, David is so consumed with his love for God and the glory of God that those who don't love God are attacking him. And so Paul by quoting this psalm, is showing that the life of David is a pattern that when you live for the glory of God, there is suffering, there is a cost to it that points to the life of Jesus. Because Jesus is the greater king who out of his love for God and the church suffers under the enemies of God. And real quick, just so we all are on the same page, before any of us are saved by the gospel, the Bible clearly says we're all enemies of God. So Paul's point is that Jesus served and sought to please others to the extent that it cost him his life. So yeah, he's turned to the church and say, that's exactly what I'm telling you to do because that's how our king has lived. Jesus served at the cost of his life. So often, if we, if we analyze ourselves, we'd go, we get upset when our toes get stepped on. We get irritated because something doesn't go smoothly. We get ready to quit and throw in the towel when our efforts aren't recognized and or appreciated. But Jesus goes to the cross literally for those who are persecuting him. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. We're already in this passage. We, we read verses 3, 4, and 5. So now we're going to read verses 6, 7, and 8. And it says, 
who though he was in the form of God, speaking of God, Jesus in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, meaning he, he set aside all of his glory by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, the Son of God, infinitely powerful, ruler of all creation, laid aside his glory, enters into humanity, gives up everything he had so that you and I could be saved, could be forgiven, and have everlasting life. The one who is infinitely rich became poor so that you and I who are poor would then become rich. Or as as Mark 10.45 says, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the gospel doesn't just save us, but it transforms us and informs us on how to live. So Paul is saying, you, you want to know how to live this way? We need to look to Jesus because Jesus is our king. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is our high priest. And Jesus is our example. So I want to encourage you, we read, we read our Bibles because when we look at the life of Jesus, not only is he our savior, our king, and our priest, but he is our example on what it looks like to live a faithful life to God. So if Jesus served to the point of death, and now his spirit dwells in you and me, and we have the mind of Christ, then Paul is saying, we can surely gather together and build one another up, and if need be, not eat meat in front of one another. Do you see the point, the implication he's drawing in here? Next, so he says, look to Jesus. Now he says, look to Scripture. In verse 4, Paul wants, Paul's basically going to say, he's going to justify why he took an Old Testament text and apply it. He, he says in verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He's literally saying, we read the Old Testament because it tells us how we act today. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 10, he's going to talk about Israel as they wander through the wilderness for 40 years. This is what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now these things happened to them, Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. In fact, earlier in Romans 4, Paul's going to talk about the life of Abraham, and he's going to talk about the faith of Abraham. And he says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. So when we read in Genesis 15, uh, in Genesis chapter 15, that it was counted to him as righteousness, he says, we're learning about justification by faith in Genesis 15, not for his sake only, but those words were written, as it says, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. What Paul teaches here, and he does all throughout the New Testament, is that all scripture, old and new, is written for our benefit so that we would grow in our knowledge of God and live like Christ. God's word is the means in which we become more like Jesus. Do you know that? In fact, get this. This is is really cool. Look, verse four, God's word produces Endurance, encouragement, and hope. That's what we see. Produces endurance, encouragement, and hope. Verse 5, just look. It says, who is God? God is the God of what? 
Verse 5. You can read it. It's audience participation. Verse 5. It's in your Bibles. God is the God of. Okay, all together now. God is the God of. Endurance. You're, you're like a little, you're, you're wondering, are we supposed to say this? God is the God of encouragement and endurance. And, and if you go to Romans 15, 13, we see God is the God of hope. So what we have here in Romans 15, 4, so scripture produces endurance, produces encouragement, produces hope. Romans 15, 5 says God is the God of encouragement and, and endurance. And then Romans 15, 13, God is the God of hope. So the very things that scripture produces in you are the very things of God because it's written by God, inspired by him so that you and I would become more like him. This is an amazing passage on the word of God. Like this is beckoning us, calling us, inviting, read God's word. Every time you read God's word, it's transforming you so that you would be more like Jesus. So if you're not in God's word on a daily basis, I encourage you, you can go home, type in today, daily Bible reading plans, and you'll get like a list. If you don't know how to do that, I have a list of them, and I will give you reading plans, which I love, but whatever it takes, I encourage you, be in the word each day. It's through the word that God is molding you and I, transforming us so we would live like Jesus. But I want you to look. Scripture gives us hope. Just think about that. It's because we have this hope, we're encouraged so we can endure the faith because of the hope. Um, DVR is an amazing thing today, or, or however you record things. Uh, some of you like to watch football. Have you ever recorded a football game and you're going to watch it later? And you record it because you can't watch it at that moment or whatever it is that you want to, to watch. And so what's the worst thing that can happen from the point that you record to the point that you watch it? What's the worst thing? Somebody's going to walk up, hey, did you hear about the game? And you're like, no. And then they tell you the score. And then you know. And you're watching the game the whole time going, I, I, I know exactly what's going to happen at the end. Um, but I, I want you to think about this. We know the end. Do you get We know the end. We know how the story ends. We know the trajectory of the world because we see not only God created, we see not only uh, the work of redemption through the Old Testament to the coming of Jesus. We know not only he died, he rose, he ascended. We know he comes again. We know that when he comes again, he gathers his church to be with him for all of eternity and there'll be judgment for those who don't and we will live with him. We know the end. And it's not like maybe it'll turn out. For 66 books, he proves his faithfulness. He proves that he is sovereign. He proves that he knows and governs all of history. So as we're reading scripture, it increases our hope because we, we trust in the God of hope, the one who knows all things, plans all things, determines all things, and has told us that we who believe in him are forgiven, are justified, and as Romans 8, 29 says, we will be glorified with him. That's why we have hope. That's why we're encouraged. So when we're reading the scriptures, old or new, especially even old, as he quotes from Psalm 69, he's saying your hope is growing so that you will live faithful 
each and every day. And when things do get hard, when it does become difficult to serve one another, oh, we'd be reminded of the hope that we have and the king that we have and that we'd be encouraged to serve one another. Lastly, he says, look to God. In verses 5 and 6, Paul gives a prayer. Like, don't, like, don't miss this. Like, Paul starts praying here. So he says, this is what we do as a church. Look to Jesus, read the Bible. And he says, I'm just going to pray right now. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does Paul pray? Like, that's a good question, right? Like, why is he just stopping the train of thought and saying, you know, it's, it's, it's prayer time right now. I told you what we need to do. You need to look to Jesus. You need, you need to read the Bible. And now I'm going to pray. Because, because the kind of unity within the church is not man-made. It's a gift from God. He is not saying, okay, you need to just go bear with one another. And, and when it kind of hurts, it makes you a little uncomfortable. Just suck it up. Just do it anyway. It's all going to work out in the end. Just serve. That's not the point. This kind of unity, this joy that we have one another is not manufactured by our hearts and our minds and our pure will and determination. It's a gift of grace from God. So he says, yeah, we, we live this way. Jesus lived this way. Scripture tells us to do this, and, and it transforms us that we would live this way. And we need to live in absolute and total dependence upon God to do this. We, we reference John 17 quite a few times. Um, there's certain chapters in the Bible you just need to know, like when we say them, where they are and what's happening. John 17 is one of those chapters. We'll call that the priestly prayer. It's on the night Jesus is about to be arrested, where then he will be crucified. So this is the, one of the last things we have recorded before Jesus will go into the garden, and, and he is going to be arrested and crucified. And he's going to pray, and he prays not only for the disciples, but he also prays for the church in all ages. And he says this in verse uh, 20 through 22. John 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in them through their word. So that's not only the disciples who I'm looking at, but everyone who's going to believe in them through their word. So who does that include? The church throughout history. So he's praying for all believers, and he says that they may all be one. So this is what I'm praying, that they may be one just as Father uh, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So this, this is an amazing prayer. It would be good to spend weeks on this prayer. Jesus prays that our unity, our oneness, would be the same as the unity and oneness between the Father and the Son. He says our unity and our love for one another points to the love and unity of the Godhead. And the only way we will love like this is by God's grace. And so Paul says we must pray. 
Prayer is how we depend upon God. Prayer says, I need God. Prayer says, I'm dependent. Prayer says that I can't. In fact, the absence of prayer is the presence of pride. So just kind of look at your own life saying, if I'm not praying, that's pride because I'm not seeing a need for prayer. This is why we do prayer meeting once a month just as a body. We come together and just say, everything we do, God, we need you to give us grace. We need you to instruct us. We need you to give us strength. This is why on a Sunday morning, we pray many times. We pray at the welcome. We pray through the music. We pray um, before I, I preach. We'll pray at the end of service. Everything we do is just in prayer because there's nothing that we do in this service that we want you or anyone to think is done by our strength. Like, I'm not coming up here and saying, man, listen to me because I'm a really good speaker. No, despite all my faults and the problems I have in communicating, may God work through his word as just I'm an instrument speaking his word. That's why we pray. So that everything we do, we're trusting in him. And, and everything we do is to also be an example of the way we are to live our lives. So husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, pray a lot with your kids. Pray about everything with your kids. So your kids go, oh, mom and dad aren't just really smart. Mom and dad aren't just really strong. Mom and dad are constantly, depending upon God, needing his grace, needing his strength. And you're teaching and discipling your children right then. This is how we accomplish things. This is how we overcome obstacles and problems, not by our will, not by our strength, not by our resources, but humbly getting on our knees and saying, God, we need you. That's what Paul's doing right here. That's what we try to do on a Sunday morning. I encourage you to do that with your families each and every day. I pray when you go meet with people, believer or unbeliever, pray. There's so many times early in ministry where I would just go meet with people. I know that there's a problem, so I'm meeting with them, and I didn't pray. And as I look back at those times, I'm going, what was I hoping to accomplish at that time? If I'm not actively depending upon God's grace, whose strength was I relying on in those situations? Whose wisdom was I relying on? Well, the answer is clear. If we're not in prayer, we don't think we need to pray because we can do it. The absence of prayer is the presence of pride. So I encourage you, be in prayer. That's how Paul is bringing this topic almost to an end here. He's saying, look, and now we just need to pray. May the God of endurance, may the God of encouragement, may the God of hope just work in us that we would live this way. I encourage you, pray, pray for the church. Every time you drive here, whether it's Sunday morning, whether it's table, or anytime you're gathering with the church, Pray. Pray for yourself, God, may I come and I just build others up. May I not be easily offended. And Lord, may there just be great unity in the church. And that's something that God has answered, I think, in amazing ways in our church. We do have a good unity. It doesn't mean we're not perfect. It doesn't mean that we, we don't struggle with things. But we do have a great unity within this church, a love for one another. But we can't take that for granted because the moment we stop praying, the moment we stop building up one another, we are going to drift back in towards division. We're either moving forward towards unity or we will drift towards the tearing down of one another individually. So I encourage you, be in prayer. Just as you saw earlier today, we had members come or, or new members come and join the body. We're committing to one another. One of the ways we commit to one another is that we're just going to pray. In fact, one thing you don't know, most of you, is we do have some women get confused sometimes uh, if it's Tuesday or Wednesday, but they come every week 
and they pray through the directory. And they just pray for you. That's an amazing ministry. There's nothing better to do than just spending time in prayer for the church. That is an amazing act of worship. So what happens if we live this way? What happens if we actually say, okay, we really are to come together to build one another up, and we're going to look to Jesus, we're going to be in the Word, and we're going to actively together, as God's people, pray that this will happen. Well, look at verse 6. At the end of verse 6, we read, that together you may with one voice. That's why we know he's talking about coming together. That together with one voice. Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at the last words of verse 7. We welcome one another. Why? For the glory of God. God's glory is celebrated and displayed through the service and building up of one another in the church. You get that? It's celebrated and displayed. This is the ultimate. This is what God does. This is the ultimate purpose behind everything he does. You should go read Ephesians 1, 1 through 14 later. It's an amazing passage that talks about God, the purpose of salvation, and everything he does. And three times he says, for the glory, for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glory, for the praise of his glorious grace. That's why he saves. That's why he works. That's what he's doing right now. It's to the praise of his glory. And so now when we're talking about life within the church, when we're talking about meat and vegetables and days of the week, we're not talking about petty things. We're talking glory of God being celebrated and displayed. This is why when the world looks at the church and they see a people who are willingly obligating themselves for the good of one another, even at the expense of their own freedoms, they're going to say, why? Why would you do that? Why do you do those things? Why do you not do the very things that you love and do all this kind of stuff that you're really good at when you're sometimes with certain people? And again, Paul's never talking about compromising the gospel. That's never the case. The whole book of Galatians is about never compromise. But how do we build one another up? We love one another. When we gather on Sundays, this is really important. The gospel is not only made known through singing. It's not only made known through preaching. It's not only made known, as we're going to in a few moments, participate in communion. But it's in every interaction that we have here. It's how we serve on a Sunday when we gather Your joyful service within the church testifies of our king who joyfully served to the point he went to the cross to save us from our sins. So when we serve, we're reminding ourselves of the gospel. And when we serve at the expense of our comfort, we're certainly reminding ourselves of the gospel and the very glory of God that has gone forth. So when when we talk about, hey, we need... We're needing help in the nursery, or we're needing help with the ushers or deacons, or we're needing more elders or more table group leaders. We're not just saying, we need you so we can check boxes so these ministries are full and they run well. That's not the ultimate reason. We're asking you to serve the body of Christ, that God's glory would be made known and celebrated. That's what happens. So when we have like children's workers who, who work on a regular basis, giving up of time, they say, we would love to be part of the church on a Sunday morning, being together. But we'll sacrifice that time. We'll be over here. We'll listen to the podcast of the audio later so we can serve the church. 
or when we have children workers who go downstairs and they serve for an entire month saying, we're going to take a month off of gathering inside with the, with the church through the teaching of God's word so we can go teach the children of the church. Not only is it amazing ministry for the children, but they're demonstrating the love of the gospel and the glory of God at that moment. So no, when we're talking about service, it's not about checking boxes. It's about the gospel. It's about what Christ has done for us and how he's working through us. That we would say, you know, I'm not even really good at that. That's probably where I would desire to be, but if that serves the body, if that would build up the body, oh, I'll willingly go do that. I'll willingly serve there. That's why there's no community like the church. Like the church is unique in every way. We are a people saved by the gospel, given the mind of Christ, that we would live like Jesus, willingly giving up our freedoms for the good of others so God's glory would be made known and rejoiced in. That's why we gather. The sacrificial love of the church for one another magnifies the very glory of God. So I want to encourage you, um, sit in this text this next week. And I just want to encourage you, especially as you're coming next week, I want you to wrestle. How am I going to build up the body? When you go to table groups, as those are all beginning to start, how do I build up the body? And if you're not sure and you're saying, look, I have no idea how to answer that question, we would love to help you with that. And just pray about it and talk about what that could look like. So I encourage you to come, talk to me, talk to one of the elders. Um, We would love to um, pray with you and talk about that. What we're going to do now is we're going to go into communion. And as we do so, I I love we take communion every week because we're remembering the gospel. We're celebrating the truth of the gospel. We're looking forward to the return of Christ our King. But as we're doing so today, just think through how this specifically applies to the text that we're in. We're talking about serving one another for the display of the very glory of God. And we're about to take communion, which points right back to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus left heaven, set aside his glory and all of his riches that he would enter in humanity so he would serve to the point of death so you and I could be saved. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the men to come forward and they will have you come and, part- and take of the elements. And then together um, in your seats, we will then uh, take it all together at that time. But let me pray. Father, oh, Father, we, we, we stand in just awe and wonder of your son coming to earth. That he left all glory. He set it aside, becoming poor, walking in humanity, taking all the insults of mankind upon himself, that he would go to the cross where we who are enemies of God nailed the very nails into his hands. And Jesus went there to pay the penalty of our sins. He served, was obedient, was humble to the point of death. And God, because 
of that work that he did and then rising three days later and where he now ascends at the right hand of the Father, we know that all who believe in him are saved and that his spirit now dwells in us. and We have been given the mind of Christ that we would live like Jesus. So I pray that right now as we partake of communion, we would, we would certainly celebrate what Christ has done, but that it would also teach us how we live today and every day as we await for the return of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.